Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. If you've been with us the last several weeks, uh, you know that we've been in a series on the book of Romans in chapter 12. Uh, The book of Romans was written by the Apostle Paul, and it is what many would consider to be uh, the greatest theological treatise that's ever been written for 11 chapters, the first 11 chapters of Romans. Uh, Paul is just waxing eloquent under the direction of the Holy Spirit to record for us what the gospel is, what Jesus has accomplished for us when he came to the earth and he died on the cross and he resurrected from the grave. What is, what is the, the, the meaning of that message and what is its impact for our lives? Uh, for 11 chapters, Paul has been expounding upon the mercies of God. And when you get over to chapter 12, though, a great transition takes place in the book of Romans. After 11 chapters detailing the mercies of God, in chapter 12, Paul begins by saying, Therefore, because these things are true, I'm going to call you to a specific set of actions. Because God is merciful and His mercy is revealed to us through the grace of the gospel, of Jesus Christ. How is it that God would have us to respond to that? And in chapter 12, Paul begins to detail that response. And over the last couple of weeks, we've looked at that. We began in verses 1 and 2, and we saw how the the rational, the reasonable thing for us to do, the logical thing for us to do in response to the mercy of God is that we would lay down our lives before our Savior and have Him transform and renew our minds. We saw that in the first week. And then last week, we continued and saw that that as we lay down our lives before Him, we need to have a proper estimation of our lives, an estimation that doesn't think more highly of ourselves because we're a part of the body, and an estimation that doesn't think so low of ourselves that, that would not understand that God wants to use us in His ministry in the body. Uh, but, but right there in the middle, we have a proper estimation of ourselves and understand that He wants to use us in His kingdom purposes. Well, today we're going to see the third installment in this series as we look at Romans chapter 12, verses 9 to 13, and we're going to see some great truth in there today. So before we, we open up and look at those verses, um, I want to read to you an email from a, a friend, uh, somebody here at Wildwood who was, was present uh, during this series last couple of weeks and, and shared just the significance of Romans 12 in his life. And this, this great testimony, you know, talks about how these verses are so precious. Th- these verses in Romans 12 may be very precious to you as well. Um, but this is a testimony that he sent to me. It says, in my, in, in my coming to Christ at age 22, Romans 12.1 was the verse that God used to grab my heart. At 16 or so, I had heard the this, this verse, at a communion service of the church I attended. However, no commitment or surrender was part of the equation. However, the verse was haunting, calling me to present my body to God. Some years in pain later, when my heart was more tender and more needy, at a Dallas Campus Crusade conference, the verse made perfect sense. Indeed, surrendering my body to Christ was the reasonable thing to do in light of His sacrifice. I was ready and said an accompanying prayer, I present my body to you, Lord. Use me. 
Bingo. That was it. Within 48 hours, I knew the secret of the ages had been discovered. Christ living his life through me. Not I, but him. What a ride. In light of this, in light of the mercy of God, in light of how God uses these words to transform our lives, uh, let's look at Romans 12, verses 9 to 13 this morning. Before we do that, let me pray. Father, thank you for today, and thank you for the opportunity to look at your word together. Father, you have set aside this morning, and you have, have inspired these words and preserved them for decades so that we might be able to today hear your message for us. And so, Father, we come with expectant ears and expectant heart. Father, and as we do that, I pray that you would um, have our heart attitude be one that is laying down our lives before you, saying whatever you want for us today, that, that you would show us that. And Father, this is such great truth, it's such encouraging truth, and I, pr- I pray that we would not be buried underneath it, but we would be supported by it as you call us forth to live the life that you've laid out for us. And Father, we thank you uh, that your spirit is present now, and I pray that your spirit would be our teacher. And you would use the words that I say to that end. But Father, if I do say something that you wouldn't want me to say, I pray that we would just quickly forget it. But the words that I share that are your words and your truth, I pray that we would remember it, we would believe it, and we would walk forward in it in the power of your Spirit, that we might be shaped more into the image of your Son. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I am a child of the 80s. This means that I grew up with uh, some of my favorite actors being stars of of action movies, Uh, people like Mr. T and uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme and uh, maybe even a little Arnold Schwarzenegger. And uh, in these movies, these guys would get paid millions of dollars to look good and to blow things up and to utter catchphrases at appropriate times. But one thing I'm convinced that these men were never compensated for was their acting ability. Um, (laughs) Think about it. I mean, can you imagine some of those guys that were the stars of our 80s, you know, iconic movies? Can you imagine any of them playing highly dramatic roles like Hamlet? I can't. Atticus Finch, Andy Dufresne, Rain Man. I mean, you name the, the dramatic role. I mean, it's hard for us to imagine some of those guys playing those roles because, you know, acting wasn't really their forte. And I was thinking about that this last week because I was thinking about what is it that makes acting good? What, what is it that makes acting good? And what makes acting good, I think, is when there is a very minimal gap between the performance and what we think reality should be. When there's a minimal gap between performance and reality, we call that good acting. When there's a, a big gap, we, we, we say that it's, it's bad acting. You know, if, if somebody's response is way more emotional than the scene calls for, we say that is melodramatic. If somebody's response is very flatlined, like they're just reading lines off a cue card, uh, we don't even know what to say that that is, other than maybe it was, you know, some of these performances of guys that I've mentioned. They, they're, they're just kind of kind of flatlined. But, but when a performance by an actor closely resembles what we think reality should be, then we call it good acting. And I was thinking about that because I was thinking about the Christian life. 
And you know, in, in the Christian life, in, in many of our estimations, uh, the goal or the purpose is for us to become good actors of the parts that God has called us to, for us to minimize the gap between the commands we see and the reality we live. We think that the, the Christian life is all about being a good actor, but there's a problem with that. The problem with that is the actors are never who they portray themselves to be. The actors are merely playing out a part. And the Christian life is not us playing out a part. You know, sometimes we think it is. We think that, that the Christian life, it's like if, if Wildwood had a playbill, you know, those programs you get when you go to a play, and you walk in and you open it up to the page that, that is the cast listing, we look in there and we see, you know, redeemed person, dot, 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 and we think our name is there, and it's our goal to play that part. We see encouraging person, dot, 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 in our name. We think it's our goal to play that part. We see saint, dot, dot, dot. We think it's our goal to play that part. Because we think that there's no way we are actually those people. We're just trying to do some good things, or we're trying to to minimize this gap so we kind of blend in a little bit within this, this body of believers. But what's fascinating for me about what God calls us to in Christ is that God does not call us to be good actors. God calls us to be who He has transformed us to be from the inside out. You see, in Christ, part of the mercy and the grace that is is laid out for us in the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans is that in Christ, we have a new identity. We have been identified with the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. And so that, that, that when God looks at us, we have a new representative. And, and from the inside of us, His Spirit is welling up and, and showing forth in our lives. So that when, when God issues commands to us, when, when Paul begins to issue some commands in Romans chapter 12, he's not saying, get good at acting like this. Minimize that gap. What Paul is saying and what God is saying to us through this is, this is who you are. Now live it out. See, the Christian life is not about being a good actor. But sometimes we think that it is. And that's why when Paul begins his list of commands here in Romans chapter 12 and verse 9, he begins by saying something very interesting. Romans 12, verse 9, the first part says, let your love be genuine. That's interesting he says, let your love, because love is, is, is a, a key word in the Christian life. When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, he said it was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love is at the core of the Christian life. So when Paul begins to issue these commands and he begins with love, he's, he's talking about the Christian life in general, not just one facet of it, but, but all of what God is calling us to. He says, let your love or let your Christian life, he says, be genuine. Literally, in the original language, it says, let your life, let your love be unhypocritical. Unhypocritical. Uh, this book was written in Greek originally, and the Greek word hypocrite was a word that was used of actors in a play. And so we might say, let your love be genuine, let your love be unhypocritical, let your love, let your Christian life not be an act. 
is what Paul says. And this is important for us to remember because in, in spite of the fact that we have a tr- changed identity, in spite of the fact that God is calling us to live forth out of who he's made us to be, we have a temptation to feel that the Christian life is an act and, and we're playing a part. Of this passage, John Stott says this, using the Greek word, he says, the hypocrite was the play actor, but the church must not turn itself into a stage, for love is not theater, it belongs to the real world. Isn't that great? Read that one more time. The hypocrite was the play actor, but the church must not turn itself into a stage, for love is not theater, it belongs to the real world. You are not actors or actresses. We're people with a changed heart in Christ. Dwight Moody said of this temptation that sometimes we have this temptation to to play a part. And Moody said this, he said, people that merely resort to just playing a part are people who talk cream and live skim milk. See, God is not calling us to just talk a good game. God is not even just calling us to minimize the gap between His commands and our performance. God is saying that I have changed your heart, therefore live a genuine life consistent with who I have made you to be. And this morning with our time, we're going to look at uh, six different statements that indicate what genuine love is what non-acting love is all about. And, and as we go through these and as you hear these, I really is my hope and my prayer that, that you don't just process these things as commands pressing down on you. But, but the fact is that there are calls to live a genuinely consistent life with who Christ has made you to be. And if you know Christ and His Spirit resides within you, when we go through these commands, it's not going to be new information for you. There's going to be something inside of you that resonates with this, and there's going to be a power source within you that is propelling you in the direction of these statements. And so what we're called to do is not play a role in a play, but to live a genuine life of love that is marked by some of these things. Well, what are those things? Six things are mentioned here. We're going to move swiftly through these. The first one is this. Love hates. Love hates. He says this in the, in the latter part of verse 9. Love hates. What, what, a, what a bizarre thing uh, to say. In, in light of the, the concept of love, the, the, the very next thing he would say is, is hate. But that's exactly what he says. He says, let your love be genuine. The very next word, hate. It's translated here, abhor. It says, abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. What Paul is saying there is that genuine love is not just a feeling of warm fuzzies for another. Genuine love is something that orients our actions and our attitudes. It's it's, it's something that, that runs very deep within us and has a desire for the welfare of another. And so, when he says that we are to abhor what is evil in light of a life of genuine love, what he's saying is that if you are to really love someone, there will be some things that you hate. And this makes some sense, right? I mean, think about if somebody that you love, 
somebody that you have deep feelings for. Then imagine something that is destroying them. You, you have someone that you love and, and they, they, they struggle with alcoholism. What is your feeling towards alcohol as it relates to that person? You hate it. You have a, a love of a person, but they have an addiction to, to, to something, to pornography, to, to, to drugs, to, to whatever it might be. What is your feeling about that, that pornography or those drugs? You hate it. Why? Because you love them. And, and that thing that is in their life, this evil thing is, is, is tearing them down. See, true love is not just some nice sentiment of feeling, but it actually has an aspect to it that hates the things that tear somebody down. You know, we think of love sometimes as, as like, you know, this feeling that, that could be represented by somebody skipping through the forest with a basket on their arm full of pansies, picking low-hanging fruit and singing a Disney song. The reality is that love is so much more than that. That the love that, that God calls us to, the love that is, that is inside of us as redeemed people in Christ, is a love that, that actually hates the things that tear down the people that we love. Why does God hate certain things? Because they tear down His creation. See, love hates. And, and it goes, that, that, that the, the dislike of the evil is replaced by a clinging to of that which is good. That's what it says at the end of that verse. And when you think of applying this or, or placing it within a context of our lives, I want you to think about those that, that God has placed around you, those brothers and sisters in Christ, those, those family members. And I want you to think about how you can reject or, or, or emphasize the negative of the things that are tearing people down and not encourage those things in someone's life, at the same time encouraging them to experience things that will build them up. You know, you use the example of an alcoholic. Somebody who struggles as an alcoholic, somebody who loves them is not going to consistently be placing alcohol in front of them. They're going to hate that, but they're going to encourage them to be involved in community that is encouraging them to not participate in that. You know, when you love someone from the inside of you, God has placed this desire to dislike, to abhor, to hate the things that tear down those that you love while clinging to the things that build them up. When you think of your role in community, living a genuine life consistent with who God has made you to be, how can you encourage the right influences? in the lives of those that you love. First thing, love hates. The second thing is that love feels. Love feels. The, the first half of verse 10 indicates to us that love feels. It says, love one another with brotherly affection. Now, the first word in this sentence that's translated love is a word that is used only here in the entire New Testament. But it was very common in the uh, rest of you know, Greek writings of the day to use this word for love. And the idea was that this word for love referred to feelings that people had for their family. 
it would be a word that would be used of a mother's feelings for her child, of a father's feelings for his son, of the parents' feelings, or of the children's feelings for their parents. Uh, this kind of familial love is talking about the feelings that we have that draw us together as family. Now, some of you have had really rough family experiences, and, and you might think, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I kind of get angry when you bring up this feeling of family. But, but imagine in an idealistic sense, in the, in the best way possible, the close bonds that would come from family. What Paul is saying and what God is saying to us here is that we are to have those feelings for one another. Now, when we hear that, that that's something that, that sounds rather odd because we're not used to thinking about God commanding our feelings. It actually, you know, is, is kind of sacrilegious in some circles. I mean, I, I grew up in my, my faith in an environment where facts were at the front and feelings were at the end, and there was maybe a light connection from the feelings to the rest of the train. You know, the, the thought that God would command my feelings seems rather unfair because how do I de- you know, force myself to feel in a certain way. And yet here God is saying we're to feel like family with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're to have those kinds of feelings for one another. That seems like a, a rather difficult command. But, but it, it's not really a difficult command when you think of the reality of what God has done for us. You see, it would be unfair for God to command us to feel a certain way if we were not who we are. But as believers in Christ, we have been redeemed. We've, we've had a new identity placed on the inside of us. We've been connected to the body of Christ. And because our identity is Christ, because the Spirit resides within us, that means that there are real feelings deep down within us for our brothers and sisters. This, this family feeling of our brothers and sisters in Christ is not something that we have to produce. It's something that is within us all the time. You know, if you can imagine a situation like um, me with my wife. I, I love my wife. You can imagine on, the, on the, the, the darkest, hardest day that we would have, if somebody were to, to come up to me on that darkest, hardest day, we're in the middle of, a, of an argument or a disagreement, and somebody were to walk up to me and say, Mark, love your wife. Is that an unfair thing to ask? No. Why? Because deep inside, I've been tethered together with her. It's a very appropriate thing to say because those feelings do exist within me, and you're, you're merely calling them forth from me. In the same way, when God instructs us to love have these feelings of love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. He is just merely calling forth from us what He has placed within us. And and the hard part about that for us is that we don't always feel that way, right? I mean, I I don't know what your story is and, and, and who it is in your life that is easy to love and who is it that is difficult to love, but my guess is that somewhere as you parse that list in your family or in your life or in your world, that there are believers in Christ that you would put in a category that would say they are difficult to love. my, My feelings for them aren't a certain way. So what are we to do? We are to let love be genuine. It's not just an act. We are to go before the Lord and to say, Lord, you have connected me to them through the work of your Son. Lord, you have placed within me 
a new spirit that has feelings for my brothers and sisters in Christ. Regardless of how I feel, regardless of what my flesh wants to do, you genuinely care for them and you want to care for them through me and there are accompanying feelings with that. Lord, I pray that you would fill me with your heart for this person. Doesn't mean we'll do it perfectly. Doesn't mean it'll be right every, every time. It's, it's, it's part of living this new life at this old address of our flesh, but the reality is that love feels. Love hates, love feels, love also honors. The last part of verse 10 it says, outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. What a, what a, a, a fascinating phrase to outdo one another in showing honor. You know, when you think about what that means, you, I immediately think about our, ourselves and, and how all of us enjoy being honored. You know, some of you, when I say that, are like, no, I don't like being honored. I don't like being up in front of people. Well, that's because if, if you answered that way, if you felt that way, it's because you're only thinking of one type of honor. But think of honor as gaining the respect of others, being you know, affirmed by others, people uh, giving preference to you in, in different situations. Um, in, in a very crude way, think of there's one piece of pumpkin pie left at your dinner this week, and somebody saves it just for you. Isn't that a nice feeling? If you like pumpkin pie, um, they took all the cool with though. No, you, you think about, um, we enjoy being honored. But, but what this says is, we are to outdo one another in showing honor. That there, though the we enjoy being honored, that as a person who has had our, our spirit changed in Christ, that, that we actually enjoy even more the honoring of our brothers and sisters. I mentioned this a little bit last week, but you know, when one part of the body is honored, are not all parts of the body honored? Because it's Christ is the one who's doing the work. See, outdoing one another and showing honor means that I'm more excited about you receiving honor than I am about me. Now, this week, you're going to have opportunity with family and friends, and you're going to be interacting with folks. And just think, what, what would it be like if, if we were in touch with our identity in Christ that, 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 that delights in the honoring of others? What if your attitude this week was, I'm, I'm going to walk forward in this week, God, as you created me, to, 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 to delight in the honoring of others? See, love hates Love feels, love honors. Verse 11, though, love boils. Uh, and, and i, I got to be honest, it's kind of an odd phrase. And uh, i, I got to be honest that I Googled that this morning to make sure that that's not some weird slang uh, f- to communicate something I didn't intend today. Um, I've got filters, so I don't know if it is or not, but nothing showed up. So I'm going to go ahead and say it anyway. Love boils. Um, and I mean that in the best possible sense of that phrase. And I get it right here from verse 11. See, in verse 11, he says, Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Do not be slothful in zeal. Don't don't become lazy in your enthusiasm for the things of God. Don't uh, come off of the camp high and then fade out over time. He says... Be fervent in spirit. Literally, 
let the Spirit boil over from inside of you. Imagine like a boiling, bubbling pot. That God has placed His Spirit within us, and, and let that Spirit that is within us bubble over, not, not becoming slothful in our zeal for the things of the Lord, but, but bubbling over with the Spirit. And when somebody is bubbling over with the Spirit, the verse continues and says that they serve the Lord. Isn't that great? What this passage is, is indicating to us is that when we live a life that is genuine, we're going to live a life that doesn't wane in our zeal for the things of the Lord. And that is something that is hard for us to grasp. Because again, our, our experience of this is, is, is not that. Our experience is that our, our zeal for the Lord does wane over time. And, and part of that, I think, is because we have uh, come to the, the, the realization or come to the thought or come to the conviction that if I'm really fired up about the things of God, if I'm really zealous for Him, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk around, I'm going to have my hands lifted up, I'm going to be all fired up all the time, I'm going to be... Also, but what's, what's interesting is that the zeal for the Lord flowing out of the Spirit's work within us has its chief presence in serving. Isn't that interesting? When the Spirit of God is boiling over from someone's life, what would be the things that you would expect to see? This passage would indicate the things we would expect to see is that them orienting their lives, serving the Lord, and others being blessed in the process. You see, when we realize that on the inside of us, God has placed His Spirit, a Spirit that is always excited about the things of God, a Spirit that is always interested in being used to minister to the needs of others, a Spirit that is always empowering us to do what would otherwise be impossible. We realize that that's on the inside of us. It is a very natural thing. It's a very normal thing. It's a very expected thing to think that our zeal would not wane. And, and you know, when I, when I say this, I want to I clarify something, because, you know, there, there are people in this room, I, I, I guarantee you, there are people in this room that you are, are tired today from serving. You just are. You're, you're tired because you've been serving, teaching this class for this long, or you're tired because you've been on this ministry team for this long, you've been tired for all these different things, and it's just kind of weighing you down. And if that's the case, I don't think that this passage is indicating to you that, no, you just need to stay doing exactly what you're doing right now. I mean, maybe that's what God has for you, but, but this is passage is not necessarily saying that. What this passage is saying, though, is that the Spirit of God within you is not going to take a vacation. You may take a step away from a, a serving role, but that's just a role. That's not God's heart for your life. That's not God's participation in your life. Regardless of what the role that you fill, that the Spirit of God wants to well up within you and boil over that you might serve others, that you might serve Him. You see, love boils. And we can be encouraged by that as we experience these, these times, these feelings, these temptations to be slothful in our zeal. Verse 12, 
Love also hopes. Love hopes. Uh, Verse 12 says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. You know, these three commands uh, have been, commentators take different tact with them. Uh, Some believe there are three just kind of unrelated general Christian axioms. Uh, But I actually think that these three things have a, a thread that runs right through the middle of it. And that thread is hope. You see, we have a hope as believers for eternity. We have, a, we have a hope that we will spend eternity with God in heaven, that Christ is preparing a place that we might go and be with Him. We have a hope that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. We have a hope that, that, that our future is better than our past. We have a hope that tomorrow is better than today. We have a hope that Christ is returning regardless of how bad the world is. And because we have this hope for the future, we can rejoice today regardless of our circumstances. Because we have this hope for the future, we can be patient in the midst of tribulation because we know that tribulation will have an end. Because we have this this hope for the future, we can go before the Lord in a constant state of prayer, believing that He is working to to shape and to shift the landscape of our future. You see, we have a hope that is placed within us because of what Christ has promised for us. And because of that, our our emotions, our attitudes, our actions can be more influenced by our future than by our past or our present. And this is so critical because when you think of your life, there's a good chance that that you're feeling, the way that you're feeling right now as you sit there is, is greatly influenced by either your past or your present. It's influenced by your past. There's something that you've done that, that you, you regret. There's, there's abuse in your past that you feel tethered to. There, there's whatever it is. There's this thing from your past that has kind of locked you down and caused you today to be bitter or angry or frustrated or defeated or whatever. There's something from your past that's influencing you today. Or it's also possible there's something from your present. There's something right now, a circumstance you're going through that is just beating you into submission right now. And you just feel so discouraged. You don't, you don't know how to pray. You don't know where to turn. You don't know what, where to go because the circumstance is so tough right now. The present is dominating your psyche. But for believers in Christ, from the inside out, inside of us, we have a hope that has been placed for a better future, for a better tomorrow, for Christ to do through us, in us, around us, near us, that which he has promised. And so because that's the case, we can have our, our, our feelings today shaped more by our future than by our, our past or our present. From the inside of us, out. Love hopes. Last one, love gives. Love gives. Verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. This one is fairly transparent in in what it's it's calling us to do, but it's basically reminding us that we're a part of the body. We've seen this throughout chapter 12. We, 
we are a part of the body of Christ. And so it is very natural, it's very normal for different parts of the body to care for one another. When my feet are cold, my hands put on socks. In a similar way, we're called to care for, to contribute to the needs of others as we are able. It's something that has marked Christians forever, that we take care of our own in that regard. If we have the ability to meet a need and we see a brother who's in need, that we're able to step forward and help to meet that need. He goes so far as to say also that we are to pursue hospitality. And, and what's that all about, this, this, this issue of hospitality? You know, in the ancient world, there weren't a lot of hotels in a lot of places. And, and the hotels that did exist were um, not very desirable places to stay. And so people, as they would travel from place to place, would oftentimes stay with friends as they would travel. And this was a command for Christians to open up their homes to other Christians as they were traveling. And we live in a day where there are some differences. We have lots of hotels and we have lots of places to stay as we go out of town. We're just much more mobile people today than they were in the first century. Um, But the principle still holds true that we are to pursue being generous to people. We are to pursue being hospitable to other believers in Christ, that we are to look for opportunities and ways for us to minister to the needs of others. It might involve setting aside a portion of your monthly budget just to, just to give to the needs of people as you become aware of them. It might mean that you just have your ears open a little more when you hear people share needs in your small group or in your Sunday school class or wherever. When you hear these things being shared, that it's not just, oh, that's too bad, but what might God do through me to help meet that need? And the reason why that is a, a, a command that makes sense to us is because on the inside of us, we, we have been shaped into the image of Christ and we have been connected in one body to these other people so that, that, that we genuinely want to contribute to the needs of others. We genuinely want to show hospitality to our brothers and sisters. See, it's, it's not just about these commands that are given to us to beat us down. But in light of what God has done, this is the natural, reasonable thing to do. It's the best thing for us to live consistent, a non-acting, genuine life, consistent with who we have been created to be in Christ. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up. And as they come up and prepare to to lead us in our closing song, I I want to just point out uh, something that I think is really significant. You know, anytime you you go through commands like this... um, you know, two things happen. I said, if you're a believer in Christ, there probably is a part of you that is, that is welling up saying, that is what I want. That is, that is, there's a desire within me for that. But there's also this part of you that is responding going, but I've, I've failed at this. There's a, there, there is a gap. I, I do struggle with this. I do struggle with that. How do you, you explain that in light of my identity? The reality is that as we live out this new life in Christ, we're living it out at this old address of our flesh. And so as we go through our days, there's going to be this struggle and this temptation. And, and, and at moments, we'll, we'll be, depending on God, we'll see Him do great things. At other moments, the, the flesh will rear its head and we'll do something we're like, where did that come from? But one of the things that's so awesome to remember in all of this is that the same God who has worked within us to create a new identity for us is all, was also at work on the cross, forgiving all of those sins that we committed, past, present, We have a God who is truly mighty to save us. So let's close by singing praise and worship.